All right. This evening, I'm going to be starting a series in the book of Exodus. And I'm going to surprise you by not actually spending all that much time in Exodus this evening. Um, but Exodus is in our Old Testament. Uh, it's the second book in the Bible right after Genesis. And it's a history book. It's a history telling us about real events, historical events that actually happened uh, here on earth. It's not just made up fairy tales or just something to teach us moralistic lessons, but it is what God did in history. And as we go through this, you might be thinking, oh, I know about Exodus, and good, I'm glad. You might be thinking about different things that happened in Exodus, the actual Exodus itself of God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. You might think of, this is where we get the Ten Commandments from. Now, this is where the tabernacle is described. Perhaps you think of the golden calf. Uh, there's lots of different things that happened in Exodus. The burning bush. Think about Moses, the prophet, priest, and king who leads God's people. And there's all of that and more, and we will be covering it. But what I want to focus on this evening is this connection from Exodus with Genesis. In the original Hebrew, Exodus begins with, and these are the names. And these are the names. If you look at Exodus 1 in your copy of the scriptures, uh, it might just say, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then it lists them out. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Well, names names matter. There's other names listed in Exodus that we're going to look at this evening. In Exodus 2, verse 24, we see these names. It says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with Jacob. And we see this repeated again in Exodus 3, verse 6. For Moses meets God in the burning bush. And he, this is God speaking, says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then just a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 15, we see that God tells Moses what to say to the people of Israel about himself. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And we see it repeated again in verse 16, chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 6, verse 3, and verse 8, and then in Exodus chapters 32 and 33. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a repeated reference. And so these names matter, and we want to understand the significance of these names as we set out studying Exodus. Well, my wife is from the great state of Indiana. And in Indiana, there is a small town named Bremen, where she was born and raised. Uh, Bremen's tagline is a good town. I looked up the population of Bremen, Indiana for this, and it said that it was 4,618 people. And uh, sometimes when we're sitting around the pool at my in-law's house, we're sitting around the dinner table or wherever we may happen to be sitting or standing, it doesn't really matter, and I'm chatting with my in-laws, you would think that they know all 4,618 of them. 
there's just names flying back and forth, and there's stories, and they go something along these lines. No, no, Jenny isn't Dwayne's daughter. She's his niece, because Jenny's mom, Luann, married Dwayne's brother, Frank. Remember, they got married at Napanee Missionary back when Rob Yoder was the pastor there. Uh, that was in the 80s. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. And then off goes some story about how my mother-in-law ran into Jenny's mom and her cousin, who's actually Taylor's third cousin, and they're building a house next to the Martins, who used to work for Grandpa Heaney at the Foundry when it was owned by J.B. Sr., but now it's owned by J.B. Jr., and J.B. Jr. is friends with Ted Nugent, and it goes on and on and on. And some of those details are true, and some of them are not. You can find out which is which later. But you're lost. And I'm lost. You're sitting there and you're saying, I don't know who these people are or the significance within this community, but my wife's family does. She understands who they are and her parents understand who they are. And when they say a name, it's like, oh yeah, I know who that person is. And I know about them. And I understand what they've accomplished here, what JB and JB Jr., what they mean to Bremen, Indiana. They're significant individuals. And you say that name and there's meaning attached to that. Names matter. And if we run across Abraham and Isaac and Jacob so many times, and God references himself to Israel as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then we better understand why. And that's why we're starting there today. So we're headed to Genesis this evening to provide for ourselves some context to better understand God as he communicates himself to the people of Israel in Exodus And so uh, I won't ask you to uh, turn to all the passages that I'm going to reference because we're going to be moving rather quickly through some of Genesis, uh, but there will be some passages that we'll pause on uh, here and there. But I'd like to go back to the very beginning. In the beginning, we see God, and God is creating, and he declares his creation good. He makes light and day. We have day and night, evening and morning. And he separates waters and dry land. And he speaks and all sorts of plants spread across the earth. And there's produce growing and there's stars in the sky and there's planets and there's moons and there's living creatures and birds and fish and whales and squirrels and lions and deer and we could go on and on and on. And the whole earth is teeming with life and it is good. It's very good. And God creates man in his image distinctly different from all other living things. And we see that in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So mankind is here on the earth in communion with God in the garden. No sin. Imagine the best interaction you've had with somebody where you walked away from that person and you said, That was such a blessing to spend time with them. And now take all the sin out of that interaction. If you could even possibly imagine that, take it out. And this is what we have in the garden before the fall. But the fall happens. It happens. And goodness 
and beauty falls apart and sin enters the world and death through sin. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent, who we know as Satan, comes to the woman to Eve and tempts her to eat of the one tree that God has said, you shall not eat. And she does it. She gives it to the man, Adam, and he eats and death enters the world. Well, Matthew Henry writes of the fall that they were stripped, deprived of all the honors and joys of their paradise state and exposed to all the miseries that might justly be expected from an angry God. They were disarmed. Their defense had departed from them, that they were shamed, forever shamed before God and angels. They saw themselves disrobed of all their ornaments and ensigns of honor, degraded from their dignity and disgraced in the highest degree, laid open to the contempt and reproach of heaven and earth and their own consciences. And what happens as soon as sin enters the world and death through sin, we see blame shifting. There's a breakdown in community. And Adam says, she gave it to me. It's her fault that this happened. It's her fault. She gave it to me. And peace and wholeness is gone. And communion is gone. And fellowship is broken down. And now every interaction that happens on the face of the earth, there is sin involved in that interaction. And not long after that, the second generation is here and Cain and Abel go and they sacrifice to the Lord. And Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable or not pleasing. And we see in Genesis 4, 8 through 10, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Things go from bad to worse all the way to Noah. God sees how wicked the world is. In Genesis 6, 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil. Everything is about me. What can I get out of the people around me? How can I serve myself? How can I make myself happy? And if you get in my way, I will cut you down. So, God destroys everyone on the earth except for one family. Noah and his family. And he starts over again. And Noah's family is fruitful and multiplies. And many nations come from Noah. And they're all righteous followers of God, right? That's where the Bible ends. We have Noah and there's a new family. And then we've lived in sinless perfection ever since. Well, obviously, we all know that is not true. There is much more to Scripture. These nations get it into their heads to make a name for themselves rather than glorifying God. In Genesis 11.4, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So everything is going to be about us. This is about us. This isn't about God. So the people on the earth, They're not glorifying God. They're not making His name great. They're trying to make their own name great. Well, as we keep going through Genesis, we see some familiar faces start to come onto the scene. Abram and Sarai in chapter 12. And God gives some promises to Abram, which we're going to spend a lot more time on later. But even after Abram and Sarai receive these promises, shortly after that, they go to Egypt and God has told them that you're going to have descendants and you're going to have a land and I'm going to bless the families of the earth through you. And yet he gets to Egypt and his immediate response is fear. 
These people will kill me because my wife is beautiful, so I'm going to lie and say that she's my sister instead. And so he doesn't trust God's word that he said to him. And later on, Sarai doesn't trust the Lord's promises either. They've been promised a child, and yet there's no child. And so Sarai takes it into her mind, well, God's plan and God's timing isn't exactly working out, so I'll step in and I'll solve the problem for him. Abram, have a child with my servant instead. And then Lot is living in Sodom, and God has purposed to destroy the city, and the angels come down to rescue Lot. And what we see in Genesis 19.11, let me turn there real quick. Or just a little bit before that, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last man surrounded Lot's house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. And they pressed hard against Lot, and they drew back to almost break the door down. The angels draw him back in. And then in verse 11, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. This is the depravity of man's heart on display, that even after they are struck blind in an act of God, they do not stop trying to go after and commit wickedness. They physically wear themselves out pursuing their sin. And it just keeps getting worse. Abraham has sons and daughters. One of them is Isaac. Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. And these two brothers do not get along. Jacob is manipulative and tricky. Uh, He uses, with the help of his mother, uh, he tricks Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing rather than Esau. And this leads Esau to respond with hatred and animosity. Sin begets sin begets sin as you go throughout Genesis. One sin after the other. Genesis 27:41 Esau says uh, says that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him and Esau said I will kill my brother Jacob. So Jacob flees. He runs away and he desires to marry Rachel but he is tricked by his uncle into marrying Leah. And then he later marries Rachel and there is animosity in the home between these women as one is having Children and the other one is not. And so Rachel, who isn't having any children, says in Genesis 30, verse 1, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob responds that he doesn't have the power to do that. And so she says, fine, essentially. Have children with my servant, Bilhah. And then later, Leah isn't having children. And so she says, have children with my servant, Zilpah. And their whole their whole identity is caught up in having children. This is what gives them worth. Rather than serving before the Lord, rather than having faith in His timing, they need children to justify their existence. And we see sin begetting sin begetting sin. Well, as we keep going... 
Jacob's sons are on the scene, and Jacob has one son who he just likes so much more. He loves him so much more than all the others, and he gives him this wonderful coat. And it is Joseph. He gets this amazing robe, and it's as if I, Christmas comes around, and I say to one of my children, hey, go on outside, like, here's a set of new keys, check out this Mercedes, and the other one's like, all right, where's my Mercedes? And I'm never going to buy my kids a Mercedes. Um, but the other one, it's like, oh, yeah, I got you a coupon for a small fry at McDonald's. Like, just be thankful for that and uh, and don't complain about it. And that causes frustration and anger and animosity. And so what do his brothers do? While they're out, they see an opportunity and they hate him. So they say, let's kill him. Let's kill Joseph. We hate him. And uh, they are convinced and said, throw him in a pit. And then eventually he's sold into slavery and there he eventually rises to the second most prominent position. And here I'd like to pause and reflect briefly. Notice what chaos, heartbreak, and destruction sin has already brought into the world. And we're only in the beginning of the Bible. There's so much more history Do you see what happens when the desires of our heart are not oriented towards God? When our desires are to make a name for ourselves instead of serving the one true and living God? Sin begets sin begets sin. We say, look at this business that I have built. And when things don't go well with it, we perhaps lash out at our employees or we take it home and we lash out at our family or we get depressed or we turn to substance abuse. Or we might say, look at how perfect my life is. And maybe, maybe my happiness and my satisfaction is caught up in my children and how well behaved they are. And then one of them doesn't really go the way that I expected them to go. And now, since all of my satisfaction wasn't saying, look at these children that I have raised, I'm no longer satisfied. And maybe I reject one of them. And I'm no longer loving towards them. And I turn on them. Well, the same thing can happen in the church. If our satisfaction is our involvement in the church or our position in the church or our service in the church and that's where our satisfaction comes from, then all of a sudden, if somebody else has an opportunity to serve there and I'm not able to be seen, or maybe that's my turf and get off my turf. And now within the church, there can be animosity and frustration and hatred. And so there is there is darkness. And people might say, well, that's Genesis, all these horrible, horrible things that we see in Genesis, you know, that maybe you say, oh, well, they're primitive. Or that was just a long time ago. We've, we have come so far. I mean, look at what we have accomplished. We've come so far. Well, I would say uh, take a newly married couple, and if you could peer into their lives, and uh, they've, you know, they've gone to college, and you know, they've been, or, or whatever, they're working, and they decide we're going to get married, and they love each other so much, and now you peer into their lives, and what happens right after they get married? Uh, a good friend of mine at my bachelor party, we were sitting around in a really, really hot apartment, and he was telling me about being newly married, and he said, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's the silly things, like, I don't close cabinet doors, and it just drives her crazy. And, and you know, and, and then there's, there's other things, like, 
I'm just used to doing the laundry, but she kind of waits around and doesn't do the laundry right away. And I'm just like, why aren't you doing the laundry? And so you, you look at this, and, and we can't even take a couple that should be the most madly in love, that they should possibly be this young love, that they should want to just serve each other and love each other and give everything for each other. And you put them in a space for a brief period of time, and what happens? They can't get along because our hearts are fallen because we don't have God as the center of our lives because there is sin in this world and we are broken and depraved. Well, this seems like very bad news. And it is. But I have good news. That we are exiled out of the garden, out of communion with God apart from Christ. And we see this in Genesis further and further away from God, more and more sin, but exiled, but not abandoned. We are exiled, but not abandoned. And now we look more closely at the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Well, Jacob's family ends up in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus, or at the end of Genesis, I should say. And the world is broken and full of sin, as we've seen. But there's this whole other aspect to what happens in Genesis that prepares Exodus we need to look at. While all of those horrible things were happening, while sin is beginning, sin is beginning sin, and people are falling further and further away from God, God was still working. He was still on the throne, and He still is on the throne. How can that be? There's chaos everywhere. How can God be on the throne and sovereign and in control of all these things? Well, I would point you to Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph, when he's talking to his brothers, And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Remember that God through his power spoke in creation and all things were made. And so God also spoke at other times in Genesis. And the first place I'd like us to look is Genesis 3.15. And you can actually turn there if you would. Genesis 3.15. I'll actually back up to verse 14. This is right after the fall and we have the Lord God speaking. And he says, the Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Your translation might say crush or strike for some of those some of those words. And here we have a promise of God. Rather than coming into the garden and immediately striking them down, which God would have been perfectly just to have done, he responds with a promise. He responds with grace. There is coming a descendant of the woman who will destroy the serpent. Now, this descendant is Christ Jesus who came bodily. We read of this in Galatians 4.4. 4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And in Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, He too, speaking of Christ, shared in their humanity so that by His death He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. How did He break the power of him who holds the power of death. Colossians 2.15 tells us this. 
Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Well, Satan thought that he was making a public spectacle of Christ. He thought that he has shamed him, put him on a cross, but it was Christ who was triumphing. It was Christ who was making the public spectacle of death. Here in Genesis 3.15, we have the beginnings of the gospel. Yes, God says, you have sinned and you will die because of sin. But here's the promise of future victory and eternal life if you believe. What a mercy this is. That God would in the very moment of ultimate harm and shame apply such a balm to the hearts of Adam and Eve. I will destroy the serpent who tempted you. I will send a descendant. Now, Genesis 3.15 doesn't give us all of this. We understand it by reading the New Testament as we continue to go on. But we know that this is what is happening here. Matthew Henry, again, speaking of this descendant, the seed of the woman, says, Christ baffled Satan's temptations, rescued souls out of his hands, cast him out of the bodies of people, dispossessed the strong man armed, and divided his spoil. By his death, he gave a fatal and incurable blow to the devil's kingdom, a wound to the head of this beast that can never be healed. As his gospel gets ground, Satan falls and is bound. By his grace, he treads Satan under his people's feet and will shortly cast him into the lake of fire. And the devil's perpetual overthrow will be the complete and everlasting joy and glory of the chosen remnant. What a blessing and a merciful it is that we have such a merciful God that in the moment of our fall, we have this promise of life. Well, turn then to Genesis 12. This is where we see uh, God speaking to Abram. And if I switch between Abram and Abraham, please forgive me. Uh, Depending on where we are in Genesis, I I might switch between the two, but I'll try to stick with it as we see it in in the text. But in, in Genesis 12, we see God speaking to Abram. And this is what he said in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your home country, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so in Genesis 3 we saw a glimpse, and here in Genesis 12, God speaking to Abram, we get a little bit more. God is at work. He's promised to give Abram's descendants land. He's promised that there will be descendants. Abram doesn't have any children right now. And he promises that through Abram, all the families of the earth, all the nations will be blessed. They will be blessed. And notice that God doesn't say, I will try, or you try, or you will, but I will. I will. It is God who is going to accomplish these things. He is the one who will do this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. It is God who is acting. Pastor Smith reminded us about that Sunday night as well. Then in Genesis 15, if you turn over perhaps a page or two in your copy of the Scriptures, Abram is reminded again 
what God said He would do for him. Abram points out, uh, God speaking to him in verse 1, says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then as it goes on in Genesis 15, Abram says, How is this going to be accomplished? And God says, Bring me some uh, heifers or some animals. And he takes these animal pieces and he says, Split them in half and they put them on either side. And this is this covenant that God is making with Abram. And here it's like a contract, like signing the contract would be walking between these pieces and saying that if I don't fulfill what I said that I was going to do, then let me be like these pieces here, torn apart. And notice, uh, well, not necessarily notice, I'll just tell you that it is not Abram who walks between these pieces. It is God in a vision. Abram, in a kind of deep slumber, he sees a fiery pot travel through these pieces, which is God. And in verse 18, it says, I will give you to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he keeps going on to talk about these lands. Can you imagine Abram looking around at all these lands? How am I going to possess these lands? I don't have, I don't have children. I, I mean, we're going to need a lot of people to possess these lands. There's other people here. And it's just my wife and me. I can't do this. There's no way. But God spoke. As He spoke in creation and created everything by the word of His power, so He spoke here and says, I will do this. And He cannot deny Himself. Second Timothy 2.13 tells us this. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. And we struggle to understand this. We change our minds all the time. Sometimes the package of cookies is in my hand and I say that I'm going to only have one more and I eat that one more and then lo and behold, another one is in my hand and next thing you know, there's a couple more gone. But I had purpose to only eat one more, right? And that's a very trite example. But we look at all sorts of situations and we change our minds all the time because what we understand and the information that we have changes. Maybe I think it's a good idea for my kids to go to bed at one point and then I change my mind later because I learned something new. Our tendency is to waffle. But I don't cease to be Daniel if I change my mind about something. But God would cease to be God if He didn't follow through on what He said. He would cease to be God. And so this contract that He says, let me be torn apart as these animals are here, we look and we say, this is the Almighty God who cannot change, who is perfectly wise, who knows all things from the end to the beginning, who has planned all things, and He will accomplish it. So it is God who fulfills the contract. Well, Abram has a promise. And then later in Genesis 17, Abram is 99 years old. He's promised an heir. And what happens when Isaac finally arrives? He's told to sacrifice his son. But Abraham now knows that Isaac is the son of promise. And so what does he say? He says, we are going to go over there and then sacrifice. We are going to come back here. 
So Abraham in that moment knows, I don't know how this is going to be accomplished, but I know that God said that Isaac is the son of promise. And so I know that he's going to come back because he has to, because God never breaks his word or his promises. He never breaks his word or his promises. So Abraham has this covenant and this promise of land and blessing and descendants. And in Genesis 26, Isaac sees a famine and he's looking around and he's, he, he says, there's no food here. We're going to go to Egypt. There's food in Egypt. In Genesis 26, 1 through 5, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Here Isaac has the promise given to him as well. A promise of blessing, a promise of offspring, a promise of lands. And then Jacob, too, receives this in Genesis 35, verses 9 through 12. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Again and again and again, we see God promising to generation after generation, renewing his promise of what he said he would do. Now, they had not received this yet, but the promise is there. Follow after me. Trust me that I will do what I said I will do. Kings did come. One mighty king, the king of kings, came. Jesus Christ came through whom we have blessing for all the nations of the earth. So when God tells the people in Exodus over and over that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he is reminding them of this promise that has not yet been fulfilled. But he is reminding them that he is the God who promises land and blessing and descendants and that they will receive this. He is not slack in keeping his promises. But before they possess the land, the people are going to suffer. Genesis 15, 13 and 14 tells us this. God told Abram, he said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So at the end of Genesis, Joseph is in Egypt, having been sold into slavery. And his brothers come to buy food because there's no food where they are. There's famine. And Egypt is the place with the food. So that's where they go. And his brothers come and they receive grain and they bring their families and they settle in the land of Goshen. And there is all this suffering and there's all this sin and there's all this brokenness. But there is a current that is going through as well of the promises of God to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that he is going to accomplish what he said he will do. Pastor Huber reminded us 
uh, at his picnic this year that we need to wait on God. He accomplishes things in his perfect timing. It's not our timing. You see in Genesis where people are trying to accomplish things in their own timing. And we'll see the same thing in Exodus. We'll look at that too. People trying to accomplish things in their own timing because they're not trusting God's timing. But His timing is always perfect because everything He does is perfect. Well, mankind is in exile. Exiled but not abandoned. Separated and apart from God. Our situation is dire apart from God. In our exile, we're similar to small children who get hurt but don't know it. A friend of mine told me once about her brother. Uh, He was going down a slide at a playground, and somehow he got injured on the way down. And who knows how children get injured, but they do. And he got down to the end of the slide, and, and he gets down to the end, and he stands up. And everybody's kind of standing around just staring at him. And he's got this welt that's already forming on his head, and there's kind of blood, and there's a gash. And they're just waiting for him to realize this, and he doesn't realize it. But then he feels the blood, and what does he do? He puts his hand up, and he touches it. And what happens with a little kid when they pull their hand away and they see blood? They cry. They cry. And what are they crying for? They're crying for help. Because there's probably mom or dad who's nearby, or older sibling who's in charge of them, who is nearby, and they are crying out for someone to come and help them. Well, our condition is even worse than this small child who didn't realize the wound because we are blind and we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we don't realize, apart from Christ's work, the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, that we are in exile, that we are separated from God. So we need the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who promises blessing, who promises a descendant to come and crush the serpent's head to open our eyes and to make us realize that we can have communion with Him. We can have relationship restored because He's promised that too. And if you read Scripture, and as we go through Exodus, we will see God fulfilling His promises. We will see that He will will tell the people, Pharaoh will not let you go. And then he says, I will bring you out. And he did. And if you think through your own life, you will see time and time again, we often have, we have to look in the past to see it, of God's faithfulness in taking care of you. God's faithfulness in bringing you through trial and temptation. God's faithfulness in saving you and helping you to overcome sin and giving you fellowship with other believers and giving you relationships so that iron can sharpen iron. He is always faithful. And there is great blessing for all the nations of the earth, for those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who see their state when God opens their eyes and shows it to them. Well, are you a child of Abraham, a true child of Abraham, a spiritual child? What we see is that we have offended the living God by breaking His law. Do you know that you have offended the living God? Do you know? So much today we see people saying that, well, truth comes from within us. You know, It used to be that people kind of readily acknowledged that there was some sort of external truth or moral guidance that they should go by whether or not they were religious or not. 
they at least acknowledge that there is an external standard that we should all live up to. But now, especially with younger people, more and more, truth comes from within me. It's my truth. I'm going to speak my truth. And whatever I choose to do, that's okay because it's my truth. Well, there is a very real living God who has established what we are to be and who we are to be and we fall infinitely short of that. Even if you were to set that aside and you say, well, I don't, I don't believe in God and you set that aside, have you lived up to your own standard? And we would all have to say, of course not. I haven't even lived up to my own standard of what I expect of myself and others. But we have to live up to God's standard and the only way to do this is to call on Christ and be clothed in His righteousness and to have Him for take our sins and bear them on the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For, us. for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Well, God is still at work. He is still working out His perfect plans and His perfect promises. Part of that is His second coming. Christ is coming again. And when He does, He will judge the nations. And whether He comes again or we die and we stand before Him, in that day, will you say, I only have Christ and His righteousness and be perfectly clothed and be standing pure before the Lord Or will you, in your exile from God, have to account for everything that you have done wrong? Oh, as we go through Exodus and we see the great works of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I hope that we will see and call out to Him the God who saves, the God who saves His people, the God who has the power to save the God who is unapproachable without a mediator, the God who is holy and righteous. Jesus Christ is that ultimate expected mediator, and if you come to Him, you will be forgiven. Call on Him that you might have forgiveness of sins and have life forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father,